morning. The text we'll be looking at is printed in your bulletin. We're beginning a new series, actually, for 2018. Uh, we're going to be looking at the lives of uh, two of the most prominent prophets out of the Old Testament, the lives of Elijah, and then we'll follow that up with Elisha. Um, these are significant figures, actually, in the Old Testament. Now, for some of you, you might be thinking, why are we studying the Old Testament at all? Um, I actually posed that question to um, an Old Testament professor uh, one time before I went to seminary. He told me what he did, and I looked at him in all seriousness, and I said, well, isn't your job like irrelevant? Um, it wasn't necessarily the best way to come across to a guy who made his living teaching the Old Testament. Um, the reason for that is, is that we run across law codes and oracles um, against foreign nations. Uh, we run across poetry that doesn't rhyme. Um, that really makes almost virtually no sense to us. We run across odd customs and cultures that uh, seem very strange, at least to us. In many ways, the Old Testament seems to be saying to us, this is not for you. Uh, this is for a different world. Um, it's too hard to understand. Yet, uh, this is the Bible that Jesus studied, uh, that he read. As another one of my professors used to make a point of saying, and he did teach the Old Testament, it makes up 75% of your Bible. Uh, so you ought to at least know something about it. So we're going, to look, uh, we're going to begin our series this morning looking at 1 Kings chapter 17. I'll read the first 16 verses here, uh, the Word of God. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in Kirith Ravine, east of Jordan. You'll drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord told him. He went to Kirith Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Sometime later the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Uh, then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zareph in the region of Sidon and stay there. I directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zareph and he came to the town gate. A widow was there gathering sticks. He called her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour and a jar and a little olive oil and a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid, go home and do as you said. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah told, had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. But the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Let's pray together. Father, we pray now that you'd be with us as we look into this story a story from the life of your servant, Elijah. 
an odd and strange story, and yet we pray that you would speak to us, that you would serve us well this morning as we gather in this place. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. A short cartoon strip called Gone Nutty of a neurotic squirrel uh, named Scat, and it is uh, supposedly from the dinosaur age, before the Ice Age arrives. Um, in the cartoon, Scat has been very busy. He carries his last acorn to his lair, uh, an old hollow tree, and we get a peek at the vast treasure trove that he's amassed. It fills the entire cavity of this tree, actually. He lugs this last acorn of the tree and tries to force it in the middle of the pile. It's a tight squeeze, um, but he pushes down on the center of these acorns, and he looks sort of pleased with himself at the end as if somehow he's arrived. But as he walks away, the nut pops out of place, and he calmly returns and begins to push it back down. Well, he walks away again, and the nut pops out again, and his frustration mounts as this goes back and forth and back and forth in the cartoon. Uh, finally, he is just um, really just having a, a fit about trying to get this one acorn back in. Well, the pressure becomes too much, and the whole storehouse explodes, sending acorns and this neurotic squirrel reeling down uh, this incline. He does this free fall into this deep gorge, and he's trying to catch the acorns as he's falling. He comes to his senses finally, and he spots this one acorn is just flying directly at him, and he tries frantically to avoid the impact that's inevitable. What's worse among the impact is that it actually triggers the intercontinental divide, and it leaves him beaten and bloody on this sort of icy plateau. He reaches down to pull the last remaining acorn out of the ice. He's given enormous energy and effort up to this point in time. He has gone through tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. And when he finally gets the acorn free, it disintegrates into ashes. Um, for many of us, this is a, a great metaphor for the way we sort of live our lives. Um, the frantic activity, the phonetic pace, uh, the endless activity only to have what we so desperately strive for at the end just turn to ash in our hands. It really does, believe it or not, bring us to this story because what we find here, sort of the subtext of this story, is that God brings life uh, where there really is none. I want you just to see that, first just to see the why uh, God brings life. This is at best an odd story. What do I mean by that? This is a very, you have to admit, a very strange way of introducing what could arguably be the most significant prophet in the Old Testament, Elijah. Instead, we get this weird narrative about a widow that has nothing, about him being fed by ravens in this isolated part of the desert. It looks like this story is just dropped in with no preparation because if you read at least the preceding chapters up to this point in time, there really is nothing that prepares us, not only for the story, but even for Elijah. And yet, it's not random. What do I mean by that? Just the backdrop of the story is that Ahaz has 
formed an alignment with Jezebel. Again, names that probably mean very little to you, but it was a political alignment for Israel. If you had lived in that time, you would have thought this arrangement was a very wise arrangement. It provided security for Israel because Jezebel was a very powerful figure in the ancient Near East. And yet, she brought with her into God's people and amidst and among God's people the worship of Baal. The story is set in the region around Jezreel. Each morning from fall to spring, the dew was so heavy that it didn't need to rain for crops to grow. And what you have, at least in the very first few verses, is just this giant confrontation that's occurring behind the scenes. Baal was considered to be uh, the god of the storm in the Canaanite mythology. He was actually the one that brought fertility to them. The effects of drought um, were not only feared, but they were absolutely devastating to the cultures in that region. We're talking complete starvation. And Baal was introduced to God's people by the great king Ahab, which we don't have a lot of time to develop him this morning, but he was a winner. Let's just put it that way. The reason simply is this. The king was uh, to ensure his job, his really his main job was to ensure fertility. It was the royal responsibility for rain, just like our president's responsibility is for the economy. And what you're seeing here is that there's no power that God can't break. Even subtly, even sort of underneath the surface, He is at work. Who's going to provide fruitfulness? That really is the subtext of what's going on here. Who's going to provide refreshment? Will it be Baal? Or actually, will it be Elijah and his God? And this, according to the story, is a draught with a vengeance. For some of us, what this shows us is really God is interested in reality, not pretense. Uh, there's no more games here, no more pretending. If life or refreshment would be found, it would only be found by knowing Him and by knowing His prophet. Just so you'll know, God interrupts everything here. He interrupts their daily lives. He interrupts their daily pursuits, their routines. This is the best description of a bomb that could possibly be given in their world. And it directly contrasts everything else that they know and experience. This God, the God that shows up here, the God who is at work here, really isn't one of modern consumption. So how does he show up normally? How do we see this kind of disruption of our own routines and our own paradigms one of the main ways that he does this is through suffering, and we have to be really careful with this one. But it is absolutely relevant in this community. Why would I say that? Because, honestly, you're the people who've made it if you look worldwide. You have, in spite of what you believe, you have success. You have a family. And the subtle sort of story that runs underneath that is if I work really hard, I can handle life. Another way to phrase that, I can manage life, or at least manage my life, and the lives of those around me. But all of us know that that's not true at all. Because trouble comes in and it just smashes our view of reality. 
It smashes the idea that I'm competent to run my own life. That's one way that God sort of shows up, or at least that he disrupts our schedules. The other way is just through emptiness. Sort of unexplained in our own lives, how can we have everything and still be absolutely vacant? One writer said this, when God wants to play a really rotten joke on you, he grants you your biggest wish and then giggles merrily when suddenly you realize you want to kill yourself. Everybody we know that deeply gets what they want, they go berserk in the process. Surely this will make my life worth living, and it doesn't. John Yates tells a story of taking his teenage sons to work with him on a commuter train outside of New York City. As they were sitting there, his son began to observe uh, the scene on this train. He's surrounded by middle-aged, pot-bellied, balding men who are wore out. Um, Their clothes are wrinkled, their shirts heavy with perspiration, and they hunched in their seats as they read copies of the Wall Street Journal. The son leans over to his dad, and this is what his dad, he says, Dad, they all seem depressed. See, no matter where you look for in life, what you find and what they found is only death. How can we have everything and be depressed? Some of you here this morning, you don't believe any of this. And yet, look at this, I dare you. Research it. The reasons for emptiness is that we look for life really in the place of the dead. And God simply doesn't allow it to continue. Uh, He disrupts everything. He brings scarcity. He brings parched lands. He brings emptiness. If you're a Christian this morning, you probably respond by saying this, look, Jesus is my life. Really? Um, Okay. Um, Along comes some career failure or some other failure in your own life and you're willing to slit your own throat. What does that mean? You thought that Jesus was your meaning. You actually thought that he was your honor, your glory, your delight, your righteousness, and then along comes a little bomb planted in your life that shows you that that's not the case at all. A better way to pray, you thought you were depending on God, you thought you understood Him, and then something comes along and you respond by saying, God should never let that happen. That's a bomb. And God is setting them off in this story in very major ways. It's not just the why, it's also the where. This story is written, has been written, in the time of the Babylonian captivity. Uh, These people were people who originally were reading this, were living in a land where there were competing gods. There were a multitude of gods, actually, that you could choose from. Competing voices telling them, this is how you have a full life. And then we come to verse 2. Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in Kirith Ravine. See, Elijah leaves. Now, why is that? Some have said, well, he's afraid of Jezebel. There's a good reason because she was a complete psycho in the ancient Near East, to be honest. But the reality is Elijah's not just a regular guy leaving. Because if we know anything about the story and we know anything about God, it looks like God is perfectly capable of taking care of Elijah and protecting him. So something bigger is going on here. So when Elijah leaves, so does God. 
In other words, we're going to see what it looks like, what it turns out like, what it feels like if God is not present. If His Word is not present, His presence is unknown. How would they fare without Him? And what you find is that there's nothing but death in the land. It's not just where the story occurs. It's also where the story goes. The location here it just demonstrates there's no place that God won't go, no place that He won't work. Zarephath is located on the Mediterranean coast. And I know for all of us it means absolutely nothing to us. Um, this land, especially this location, belonged to uh, Jezebel's dad and ultimately to Baal. What this shows is that Baal could not even provide in his own home. Phoenicia was this great power in the ancient Near East, and yet she couldn't provide for herself. It's ironic that Israel would worship the Phoenician Baal when it couldn't even provide for its own people in its own land. I want you to see that God is not confined here. The effects of this drought are felt everywhere. God is not just concerned with his own little tribe. Instead, he reaches out to this widow in this pagan land, by the way, and she's never named. Israel called to be a light to the nations, but when they came, actually, when they found themselves to be identical to the nations, there's no light to be seen, and God sends his prophet into that place. He sends his grace to this widow. Her situation seems absolutely hopeless. In fact, all that she looks forward to is dying, according to the story. And yet God shows up. Some of you know that my hobby uh, is scuba diving. What you may not know is that um, pretty much I would dive anywhere, uh, especially early on. I know that may not mean much, but I'll try to describe what that really means. Um, anywhere that there was an opportunity to dive. I've been in fish ponds. Um, sewage treatment plants, I've been in rivers, I have dove for bodies, I've dove for weapons, I've dove for cars, um, anywhere that there was an opportunity to dive. I've been in sites um, that reek, uh, and yet an opportunity to dive, I was there. No place I wouldn't go. No place that God won't go. No place that's off limits. For some of you this morning, you think, look, my situation, you don't know it is completely hopeless. No place that God won't go. If you're a Christian this morning, you've been commanded actually to love those that are different. To actually go where they are. Um, to be physically, personally present. The question is, are you? Because when God wants to reach someone, He actually sends a person. It's interesting. He wants to reach this widow. He sends Elijah. Who are the ones that actually you're building relationships with? I've had people that look at me and say, look, I don't know how to do that. Seriously? Um, look at the story here. Elijah appears on the scene. He has no background for this lady, no pedigree, no fame, no political clout, no alphabet super degrees behind his name. He has nothing. And yet he comes. It's not just kind of the why God goes, uh, because of the desperation that's seen. It's not even where he goes. It's actually what he gives. Uh, just the wrapping, uh, according to what we see here, the provision, nobody that God won't help. Everything about this widow is wrong. 
What do I mean by that? In that culture, without a husband or protector, she would have been the most vulnerable individual that you could ever pick out of that culture. She existed completely on the fringes. Without a male, she had no access to the public sphere. In the Iron Age, she would not have attended any school. Uh, she would have gained no computer skills. She would have nailed down no position at an office. She would not have opened her own business. Widowhood, the best way to describe this, was a complete dead-end street. That is why she says, the only thing I've got to look forward to is death, and it can't come soon enough. Because living makes really no practical difference for her. Her gods had left her, yet God, Elijah, approaches her. And what does he do? He cares for her. He provides abundantly when she has absolutely nothing. She makes no claims, actually, on Elijah. She, makes, she doesn't bargain with him, if you do this, then I'll do that. If you tell me God will provide, then I'll bring you the cake. And this request that Elijah gives her, okay, just, it just seems absolutely obscene. Uh, here's this woman who has nothing, who has barely enough to make this meal, I'll put that in quotes, for her son and her, and he asked for part of it to eat. Um, here's the essence of someone with no resources on the verge of death, and he says, let me have the first helping of your meal. Now granted, he does soften it with a promise, do not be afraid, God will give you an abundance. She gambles her entire existence on this one. What you see here is really the essence of what faith really is. She continually, daily, returns to that jug every day. It wasn't a one-time event. Uh, we don't know her name, but what you can say is just incredible grace is seen here. Incredible faith on her part is seen here as well. One writer said this, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Jesus actually said that. Puzzling over this statement, C.S. Lewis said on this, prostitutes are in no danger of finding their present life so satisfactory that they can't turn to God. The proud, the self-righteous are in that danger. This woman had nothing, and yet she gives everything. Some have read this story and say, look, that's right. You just have to believe in God, do what He says, and you'll never be in want. I mean, that's what the story says, right? First, and my response to that would be this, uh, what, what makes you identify with Elijah and not with the rest of God's people who suffer or with the widow? The second is just the story itself. Uh, miracles in the Bible aren't done willy-nilly just to do something magical for people. It illustrates who he is and what his purposes are. It's designed to excite the curious. They're redemptive events is the best description I can give. What do I mean? They point forward to something else. To another prophet who had actually approached a woman who was on the complete outskirts of society. Uh, the other woman was actually seeking water. And the other prophet brought God's word to her. 
He brought life in the midst of a desert. He sought someone outside of his own land even. Someone who he identified with. Jesus said this, Come to me, all you who are weary and whose lives are empty, who live in a dry, parched place, and I will give you rest. He also says this, Whoever believes in me, as the Scriptures has said, streams of living water will flow through him. He promises, this prophet promises an abundance. Not a scarcity, not a dribble, but instead of a flood. Now, how is that possible? It's possible because when Jesus was on the cross, he basically cried out these words, I thirst. So thirsty, he thirsted to bring you back. See, what comes first in the story is the approach of God through his prophet, ultimately through the prophet Jesus. You know, Christianity is not about you finding a full life. It's not about you finding God or figuring this out or finding some kind of abundance in your own life. Instead, it's about God seeking you and taking hold of you, bringing you into his family and astonishing you with his grace. See, the heart of this story is this. God is whispering to you, I want you in. If you're just a religious person this morning, you want a full life, but you think you can get there by your own efforts, by doing good. Actually, by living the straight and narrow, whatever that means. The reality is that's why you have a God you can't enjoy. You wonder why that is, why, at least for you, Religion, Christianity, is really just drudgery. It's just another form of the straight and narrow. And that's really, honestly, why we don't like being around them very much. If you're a secular, secular person this morning, you have a God that's really loving but nothing more. It's not a God that might bring drought into my life, but instead He's a sentimental God. And consequently, he's nothing to get really uh, passionate about. He accepts me just the way I am at no cost to him, and there's no excitement, there's no passion, uh, there's no joy. This morning we come to this table. The God, this God, actually sets before you a table in a dry and thirsty land. And he pleads with you to look, to see, to taste and to know a well that will never run dry. Jesus gives you the great prophet of God. He gives you himself here this morning. He promises you God's presence. He gives you his ultimate abundance. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your great love and mercy that you do gather us as your people, not to offer us crumbs or trickle, but instead that there might be abundance in our lives. Father, we pray that as we take hold of this element, these elements this morning, that that would be true of us. Many of us come. Really, we are dry as we enter this new year. And we thirst with a thirst that cannot even be explained. A thirst that drives us, that dominates us that we long to have quenched, we pray, I pray, that this morning you would meet us here and that you would satisfy our deepest longings. In the name of Jesus we pray.
Amen. We come now to this table. This table.